Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, Experts on Expert. I'm Dak Shepard. I'm joined by Monica Mouse. Hi. Hello. We have a very fun expert on today, Gloria Mark. She is the Chancellor Professor of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine. She received her PhD from Columbia University in Psychology and has been a visiting senior researcher at Microsoft Research since 2012. She has a new book that we talk about in depth called Attention Span, out January 10th. Pre-order it for a loved one for the holiday mm. season. Attention span, finding focus and fighting distraction. This is a really great topic and all of us, no matter who you are, are deciding minute by minute what you'll give your focus and attention to. While you've been talking, I've been looking at that green thing on the floor. The carpet is fucking destroyed. I've been distracted. Ding, I was ding, distracted ding. during the fact check. There's... Every kind of food, dirt, hair. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised there's no Band-Aids on this carpet. That's like the last thing it needs. Yeah. The green thing was shimmering. And I thought, oh, oh it's like a um, unicorn poo-poo. Uh, no. And then oh. I looked closer oh. and it was a Ooh. salad. It was a salad lettuce. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it got, got loose <laughs> while you were eating your goop salad. <laughs> this episode's brought to you by goop. No, don't do that because <laughs> we hope, we wish. Do they advertise? They don't need to. They got her. They got the queen bee. Anywho, please enjoy Gloria Mark. We are supported by Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can do much more than build a website. You can also sell custom merch. Guys, this is what we do on Squarespace. We have a merch team, and we offer it all on a website beautifully built by Wobby Wob on Squarespace. Simply design your products, and production, inventory, and shipping are all handled for you. With Squarespace, it doesn't matter what you sell, physical goods, digital products, services, they have all the tools you need to start selling online. Just take one of their professional website templates, then customize the look, update the content, and add features to fit your unique needs. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so you can stand out online on any device. For a free trial, just head to squarespace.com DAX. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code DAX to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. We are supported by Sleep Number. Sleep is so important for your overall health and well-being. And if you don't get enough of it, there could be some serious negative impacts. So how do you make sure you get some quality rest? Well, it starts with a good mattress, like the Sleep Number Smart Bed. It was designed for your one-of-a-kind, ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can take your sleep to the next level. Boy, I got to tell you, having just traveled back and forth to Indian and skipped 12 time zones, I get reminded of how absolutely imperative good sleep oh, is. Oh, it's so necessary. You cannot even feel like a human being you if you're not. <laughs> the best part about Sleep Number is you can easily adjust your firmness. And while you sleep, Sleep Number smart beds automatically respond and adjust to your movements throughout the night. It's heaven. And if you want to improve your health and well-being, Sleep Number is where you should start. Sleep Number smart beds can show your ideal sleep and wake-up schedule and the best times for activity like working out and winding down. Sleep next level with a Sleep Number Smart Bed. It's the only bed that lets you adjust each side to your ideal firmness and comfort. Your Sleep Number setting. Only at Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com. He's an Uh, it doesn't matter. I would probably leave the cable on this side of you so you're not getting tangled. You don't want to spend your vital mental resources fighting with that cable. 
right? That's a U-tile. That's an ounce of the gasoline out of the fuel tank. The new update has text at the bottom of the screen, which I find interesting. I did not opt to do the update. Oh. You did. Or maybe mine auto did. It auto does. It yeah. auto did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gloria, are you an iPhone or an Android? You, oh, I already iPhone. know this. Oh, iPhone. Oh, okay, wonderful. Yeah. Because you're in the rack with Microsoft in some capacity. I could see oh. where you feel encouraged <laughs> to use that Android when, system. When I used to work there in the summers, I was like the only person that had a Mac. <laughs> so not only do I use an iPhone, but Mac. I like that defiant. <laughs> You have to. You have an art background. I do. The mm -hmm. Macintosh is the artist's machine, right? It is. Are you from Ohio? I am. You mm, are? I Whereabouts? Clevelandy? Clevelandy. <laughs> Parma. Okay. So that's the Southwest. Is that close? To what? Cedar Point? Yeah. Of course, it's what we are an hour and a half from Cedar Point. Yeah. I remember as a kid going to Cedar Point. Back when they probably only had the blue streak in the Gemini. Yeah. <laughs> and none of the now record-shattering offerings. Coasters? Yeah. When's the last time you've ridden a roller coaster? Oh, my God. <laughs> I hate roller coasters. Mm. I am deathly afraid of roller coasters. Always or recent? I have been on them a few times, and that just confirmed how afraid I am. Okay. Yeah. It's a heights issue or it's a vertigo. It's an equilibrium. I'm very afraid of heights. And also it's this feeling of being out of control yeah. and you're just yeah. barreling down. <laughs> there's no brakes. Right? Yes. Yes. Did uh, you see there's going to be a new coaster? That comes off the track? Yes. Yes, is I saw that. Is that real or is that like an Onion article? <laughs> I can't tell. Have you seen this, Gloria? <laughs> I would be so freaked out. Right? I, just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Imagine a loop-de-loop -loop, and then just imagine the top third of that loop is missing and apparently it's going to leap from one I track know. to another. But one has to imagine like a strong gust of wind would <laughs> throw it off its trajectory I know, pretty easily, I don't right? understand. I might ride it. Don't ride I'm it. over roller coasters, but now that there's a real Don't threat, okay. control, that's a lovely place to start. Is it the same for a painter? So I was, I think, very drawn to writing because I'm in charge of every single thing that happens in the world. People will act how I want them to act. I can predict it all. Is painting similar? Of course, you have control of the painting because you're the creator. The only way I can imagine a person would not have control is if they listen to the critics. Mm. Uh -huh. And then they change their direction because they don't feel the critics are appreciating it. Yeah. I think a lot of artists don't seek control. They seek chaos and the Ooh. abyss and discovery. But oh. that's still control. If you're seeking chaos, you're still in control of the chaos. Oh, yeah. true. You're chaos right. you create is yeah. a little different than chaos you're the victim of. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a cool place to explore. It's almost like BDSM. Oh, a yeah. safe place to explore. Scary stuff. <laughs> Scary, chaotic. <laughs> yeah. As is writing. We interviewed Chuck Palahniuk. He wrote Fight Club, very anarchistic type of spirit in his writing. 100% opposite human being when you yeah. meet him. I'm like, this guy wrote all these crazy. He gets to be this wild version of himself. He would never be in real life. That's almost the appeal of it. Yeah. Artists can collaborate with each other. When you collaborate with another person, you give up some kind of control. That's yeah, true. Yeah, I point to her. Yeah. You're giving it up. 
Yeah, we give it up to each other. It's a compromise. That's right. Is, yeah. And we're both controlling. Big time. Yeah, big time. Who do you think's more? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, you've heard the show. I guess you'd be better suited. <laughs> yeah, why don't we rope you into <laughs> just who's saying more who's more controlling? <laughs> I take the fifth. Yeah, that's wise. Okay, so you get a BA in fine arts. BFA. Where's the school? It's in Ohio. That's why I asked. Cleveland Institute of Art. Ooh. I got to mention just for shits and giggles, Kristen's entire family's from Cleveland. Oh, really? Yes. I don't know if you've run into some bells. There's trillions of them. And then I did a movie in Mentor, Ohio one time, and I was very charmed by the experience. And I think there's a very, very similar vibe in Cleveland to the Detroit suburbs as well. We're kind of similar stock, yeah? People in Ohio are so nice. So whenever I go back, I'm just kind of amazed at how nice people are. They want to help you. We're not used to it. I mean, I've lived in New York for a long time. I've lived in California. Mm. Yeah. I've lived in Germany. I'm not used to people being so nice, but that's what I grew up with. Yeah. Germany's a huge fascination of mine. Mine too. Tell me, what part of Germany did you live in? So I met my husband in the States, and then we moved to Germany. He's Austrian. But he got a really good job, a professorship, which is really hard to get in Germany. So we first moved to Constance, and my kids were born there. And then we moved to Bonn. I have two daughters. That's a perfect amount. Oh, same, same. That's perfect. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. (laughs) Congrats to you. (laughs) And then we moved to Bonn, where I took a job at the German National Research Center for Information Technology. My husband also got a job there. And then about five years after we came back to the U.S., we went back to Berlin Mm. on a sabbatical. Okay. Very different than the rest of Germany. Right. Very bohemian, very messy, unscheduled. Berlin is electric. It's the Paris of Germany. It is. And there's conventionally legalized prostitution, decriminalized Uh, drug use. It's very out there. It's like a reaction to the rest of Germany being so... It might be. (laughs) There's a self-selection process. So Germans who really are uncomfortable being in the rest of Germany, they head to Berlin. San Francisco as well. We could call it the San Francisco of Germany. Yeah. Okay, so I obsess on this. And we've had a lot of different professors on that actually study either in the workplace, different cultural norms between countries. And there's all these different great little metrics they use to assess people's national personality type. Here's my experience with Germany. I go there, I'm blown away. Everything works. These buildings are 300 years old and they're cleaner than my house that was built last year. You're in awe of it. And everything works perfectly. It's a trade-off. And I'm not talking about Berlin, but other parts of Germany, yes, it's clean. Things work. You can predict when a train is going to come. Talk about control freaks. That's where we started. Oh, yeah. But there is a lot to be learned about bedside manner (laughs) and friendliness. And I shouldn't generalize. I have so many good friends, and Berlin is very, very different. But I've had my share of people who did not have good bedside Mm. manners. Yes, very direct. Weirdly has given me gratitude for the U.S., I'm very critical often of where we live. It's, I think, our duty as citizens. But it seems to be a spectrum. I don't know how you get the incredibly well-run, super clean aspect of the human nature and the zesty, vibrant, passionate side to coexist. I've weirdly come to believe that we're some kind of a nice mix of those two things. I think so. Germany has all these 
implicit norms. And you have to live there your whole life or a very long time, or your parents have to be Germans. You learn the norms from your parents. But when I first came to Germany, you know, I was this foreigner and I didn't know any of these norms. I'll tell you a story. You know, first time I went to a supermarket, I had no idea that customers are supposed to bag the stuff themselves. Oh, sure. And so, <laughs> and so I had this long list of items, and it took me a really long time to find them because I didn't read the language. Oh, yeah. And I had to really figure it out. I get onto the supermarket line, and I unload all my things, and I'm just sitting there as the cashier is ringing things up. <laughs> oh, no. And you're supposed to really quickly put things in a bag, and the cashier just started throwing it on the floor. No. <laughs> oh, good for them. Yeah. On the floor? That's so rude. And, and I didn't speak any German, and the people in the supermarket did not speak any English. And I start screaming, what are you doing? Why are you throwing this on the floor? <laughs> and nobody pointed out to me that you're supposed to bag your own groceries. Yeah. Oh. From their point of view, they're like, look at this entitled human yeah. being. Like, what are you staring at me for? Put your shit in the bag. Yeah. Let's get moving here. We've got a pace to adhere to. <laughs> so I bag my own groceries now when I go shopping. They infected you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So rewind. You graduate from art school and you quickly realize you're not going to be making any kind of a living pursuing art. And now you start, I'd imagine, a pretty crazy process where you're like, now what am I doing? By the way, this is the same outcome for an anthropology major. What does one do with that? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I say my backup plan was the only thing that was harder to get than a job in anthropology, which was be on TV. All right, so you're kind of surveying the world in how on earth do you land in psychology at U of M of all places? I did a lot of soul searching. I just didn't have a clue. What could you do with an art degree? You can't go to medical school. You have to go get a whole new bachelor's degree. And I didn't want to do that. I took a couple of classes testing things out. But, you know, I was always good in math and science. And I realized that I can make a living doing something related to this. So I looked around. I thought, okay, I will just get a master's degree in something related to math or science that's going to enable me to get a job. Maybe I'll do art on the side. And I found this graduate program at Michigan. Fortunately, they didn't care about your bachelor's degree. So I got in. And then when I was there, I applied for a job because I had to work. I applied for a research assistantship with a professor named Manfred Cochin. What a name, Manfred. That's Manfred. wonderful. Yeah, yeah, you don't meet a lot of Manfreds. <laughs> yeah, he was from Austria. Oh my God, is this your husband? No, no, no. Oh, I that thought would be that, juicy. yeah, that was this exciting. Was, yeah. <laughs> This is a that came twist. later. <laughs> that, that came a long a time. Boy, the, yeah, the universe life, was throwing Austrians yeah. in your lap. Total coincidence. <laughs> so I go and apply for this job, and Manfred Cochin. He started asking me, "Do you know fuzzy set theory? No. Can you do queuing theory? No. Can you do coding? No." So I just picked up my backpack and started to walk out. Yeah. And he said, "Wait a minute." <laughs> What can you do? Still lives. <laughs> I, I can paint. <laughs> yeah. And he said before he went to MIT to get a PhD in math, he studied at the Art Students League in New York. And so then we had this 
wonderful conversation for a couple of hours about art. And then at the end, he said, I have this grant to study the discovery process. Do you think you could study that about artists? And I said, oh, Sure, I could. Discovery is a very broad term. What specifically do you mean? How cognitively you would make a discovery, how you would really come up with some new idea, some mm. new concept. I got you. And of course, I knew intuitively how artists did it. I just didn't know how to write this in a language that could be academic. Cochin said, okay, I'm going to take a chance on you. So I read Every article I could find that was related to this idea in cognitive psychology, and I just began to love psychology. Really quick, because your master's there is in biostatistics. Yes. So what is that? looking at? Is That's, it literal as fuck? Bio statistics? <laughs> is it accumulating data? It's a very applied field. And it's analyzing data. People who work for the CDC or the EPA would be using biostatistics. Is it safe to say there's no overlap from what Manfred has just deployed you on and the biostatistics? Or is there some overlap? There is a very loose overlap. Okay. A sliver on the Venn diagram. Very just much a sliver. Edges touching. Yeah. In this degree program, I could take electives. And so I took my electives in psychology courses. Okay, so psychology just really blows your dress up. You just <laughs> love it. Would you say even that at some point you're like, oh my God, I like this as much as I ever liked painting? It's really interesting because coming from an art background into science, I took a lot of the mental processes that I used in art and applied it to science. You know, after I got into science, I realized it was the best training I could have had. Because when you're in art, you do lateral thinking, where you take two seemingly really different ideas, and you find some way to connect them, and that creates a new idea. Oh, great. So I was going to ask you, you said you knew intuitively what the creative process discovery. was. Uh, discovery was for an artist. And I was meaning to ask, what is it? So that's it. Does that artist to artist, or that's for you personally, or just in general, that's pretty common? So I would say in general, it's common. Yeah. And actually, when I worked for a coach, and I went a little bit further, and I wrote about how artists create a kind of structure for whatever it is they're creating, even if it's abstract, and then you break out of that structure. And so the creative process is kind of this back and forth process of creating the structure and breaking out of the structure yeah. until you feel happy with what you produced. But when I made the move from art to science, I took that lateral thinking process with me, being able to think of crazy ideas and thinking out of the box. And then I realized that people who are trained in science, for the most part, it's a kind of linear logical reasoning. And people aren't always trained to think of some really different idea and figure out how you might make a connection. How does it work in visual art? I'm not artistic at all visually, so it's hard for me to imagine this. I did abstract expressionism, and it's harder for me to explain it because it's really very abstract. But maybe a better example would be Marcel Duchamp's creation where he stuck this bicycle wheel in a stool. Do you know that? I don't. Dadaism, oh. you know, would 
take two very different objects and place them in juxtaposition. There's this famous art piece, and I don't know who the artist is. It's a cup made out of fur. It's lined with fur. Mm. Right? So, of course, you're not going to want to (laughs) pour hot coffee into the the fur. That gives me an emotion, yeah. like disgust. Yeah, I don't like that. yeah, the notion of drinking a, from a furry cup is really as bad as it gets. I was at the Guggenheim in Spain, and there's the flower puppy. It's a uh, Koontz. Oh, uh-huh. Koontz, yeah. Yeah, the huge dog. It's a yeah. big blow up. It's made of flowers. But does it look dog. like um, balloon art? It's not no, one of those. No, okay, okay. it's just this enormous, like, as tall as the house. Dog, but made of flowers. Oh, real flowers or fake flowers? I think real. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so there's only there's a season you can see this piece of art. They'd have to spray it. They're spraying it. They're spraying it. But I guess that's two different things coming together. Well, I think a really cool physical example you can see of this, if you ever find yourself in Barcelona, there's a great Picasso museum. And prior to me being at this museum, I was like, I don't think I buy it, this whole Picasso thing being the greatest genius of all time. I'm thinking, you know, a kid could draw that coming from that Philistine point of view. There is one room dedicated to, I guess it's about nine paintings. And it starts with this kind of very famous Middle Ages portrait of a castle. There's a couch, there's furniture, there's a dog, there's all these objects in the room. And he first starts by making a perfect copy of it. Mm. And right there I was like, oh, I guess I didn't realize he could do that. It's a Xerox copy of the first painting. Then the next one is a step further in his cubism. And then you follow these paintings around the room until you get to what we would know as a Picasso. And now when you're looking at it, you're like, oh, it's all there. Because I got to see it go slowly. And then I was like, oh, this is the greatest artist to ever live. I was totally sold on it. Yeah, and he was the first to do cubism along with Georges Braque. And who would have thought of it at the time? Art was very, very different. And he comes along and he just revolutionizes it. Which, by the way, I knew what cubism looked like, but I didn't even realize until maybe eight months ago I actually read what the what, what it, it really is. is. Yeah. So, and correct me, you would know, but artists use a point in their painting to do perspective, right? right? We've all done that in an art class. You draw a little dot, and then everything's got to be extending towards that dot. He enters a second dot or a third uh, dot. He, what cubism is is multiple dimensions. Oh, interesting. Yes, right? I, yeah, I didn't know that. And it's more than that. It's also portraying some object over time, mm. Ooh, right? Interesting. If you're moving around an object, you're seeing it from different perspectives and you're seeing it over time. Oh, oh wow. Well, that's uh, very Einsteinian. Very space time. Yeah, it's very space time. <laughs> we were kind of obsessed with space time lately. We're about six years from actually understanding it, it yeah. but we feel like we're on the path. <laughs> okay, so you teach informatics at UC Irvine, which informatics, what a tasty word. Mm-hmm. What is informatics? Our department has been doing a lot of self-searching about why did we choose that name? (laughs) You know, we, we chose it because it made sense at the time. And the idea is to convey the intersection of studying technology and people. Okay. That was the intent. We didn't realize that people outside of our department would have a hard time picking that up yeah, and sure. understanding it. But it is a good description 
of what our academic department is about. Right. And so your book, Attention Span, Finding Focus and Fighting Distraction, it's all about how we are interacting with our modern technology and how we're splitting up our attention, our most vital resource why we split it the way we do, what are some myths. So it's a very juicy book. I can't imagine there's a human being listening that doesn't interact and isn't currently interacting with a device. Oh, I'm going to earmark the fact that I believe we're the anecdote to all this, but I'll save that towards the The antidote? Yeah, when I say anecdote, I did the attic thing. Just, yeah. just change. Just, I think just, we're the antidote. We're the anecdote. Ooh, ding, 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 anecdote. Okay, so let's first talk about some of the myths surrounding our relationship with technology and how we pay attention and what that means to pay attention. Let me start with William James. William James is known as the father of psychology. Not Freud? Freud started a whole different flavor of psychology, right? He's the Mick Jagger. Yeah. He's maybe the Mick Jagger, but (laughs) William James would be who started rock and roll. It has to be given to Chuck Berry. Elvis ripped off Chuck Berry. He would be maybe the Chuck Berry of attention. (laughs) Boom, love it. (laughs) Analogies, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, I mean, psychology, it's a very young science. It's not like chemistry or physics or biology. And so William James had a very philosophical approach to psychology. So William James says, everybody knows what attention is. It's the taking possession of the mind. That's intuitive. Of course, we all know what attention is. When our mind is filled with something, we're paying attention to it. But it turns out that there are other kinds of attention other than attention that's where we have a willful intent to focus on something. Yeah, you say conventionally attention's goal-oriented. You want to make this piece of toast, you need to pay attention to the getting the bread out, the butter out, the toaster, blah, blah, blah. Right. But there's also attention that's automatic. So when you hear a chime on your phone, right, a new text is coming in, you jump to it and you grab your phone, that's automatic attention because you've been doing that so much. It's not even under your willful control. Yeah. Yeah. Driving, would we say driving? Driving is automatic until somebody swerves in front of you (laughs) or honks their horn, then all of a sudden you switch your attention. That's why we can talk and drive at the same time because driving is so automatic. Yeah. Yeah, it's all happening in the background. Yeah. Yeah, so no one has the goal, to my knowledge... I want to pick my phone up every 12 minutes. Nobody that I know has that goal. Yet we all pick our phone up every six minutes. Even if you have the opposite goal. I know. You're doing. It's so strange. Okay. So your attention, I guess that's the essence of mindfulness is really like, hey, notice that your attention is your most valuable thing and you're in charge of it and you need a game plan. If you just wait to find out what grabs your attention, inevitably, at the end of the day, it probably won't be the things that you were hoping would have grabbed your attention. I would say that's right. So first, I think it's important to get into how much debunking you've done of multitasking. You know what's really funny is I bet I've been referencing you for the last five years and not even knowing until I was researching you that I'm referencing you. Because 
it became pretty headliney a few years back that no one multitasks. So tell us about multitasking. Tell us the fallacy of multitasking yeah. and what really happens when one multitasks. Right. People think that when they multitask, they can do more. I'm going to be this superhero and multitask, but you're actually doing less. First of all, what is multitasking? It's not literally doing two things at the same time unless one of those things you're doing uses automatic mm. attention, like chewing driving gum, yeah. and chewing gum or driving <laughs> and talking. As long as one of those things is automatic. But if there's two different activities and they involve controlled processing, controlled attention, you can't do them at the same time. What you're really doing is you're switching your attention mm. very rapidly back and forth. Maybe you can do it rapidly, but you have to acknowledge there's a buffer between the switching, the little gap between switching. Uh -huh. It's Delay. bigger than that. It's exponential. It's not just that you pick up where you resume. There's like a reboot time. Yeah, there's a disruption cost. The way to think about it is that if you're working on something, you have this internal representation. So let's say I'm writing. I have this internal representation of this thing I'm writing. You know, I'm thinking of the information, thinking of the topic, I'm thinking of the words I'm trying to use. And then suddenly I shift and I check my email. And it's like we have this inner whiteboard and you're erasing that whiteboard. You're erasing what you were thinking of. And then you rewrite and you rewrite this new representation. So in my case, it would be email. Let's say I shift to checking the news. So then I'm erasing the whiteboard and I'm writing some internal representation of the news. Yeah. By the time you return to the thing you were writing, even if you hung on to the info, you'd still be like, oh, wait, how was I laying? Right. It's back to page one. That's right. You have to reorient to where you were. You have to try to reconstruct that internal representation. And the time that it takes to do all of that. That's a disruption cost. You write in the book, there is a switch cost. The time loss, because whenever you switch your attention, you need to reorient to the new task at hand. The cost would not be so high if you immediately picked up an uninterrupted project. But unfortunately, our data show that we don't. Rather, we switch our attention to at least two other projects with over a 25-minute lag before we return to the interrupted task. Oh, God. Yeah. So, 25 minutes. 25 and a half minutes. Ooh, and a half. Wow. So let me explain what that's like. So first of all, when we're talking about shifting attention, you can be thinking about shifting at a really low level, like shifting from typing to doing email to talking on the phone. But you might say, maybe it's not so bad if it's all within the same project. Uh -huh. Right? Uh, sure. So I imagine if you're prepping for a guest, let's say, you're maybe reading the book of the guest. You might be talking on the phone with Monica. You guys are talking with each mm -hmm. other. It's all the same project. So maybe it doesn't matter that you're switching these low-level activities. If we think more broadly and think about switching projects, in your case, it would be switching from prepping one guest to prepping another guest. It happened this morning. So I'm researching you, I get a text, we can't release the photos of another guest that's time to promote. Like this is the real life example that happened to yeah. me this morning. And yeah. it's like, oh my God, it's like, what are we gonna do now in place of not having a foot, right? We're talking about armchair expert, but no. Yeah. And then I returned to your research <laughs> and I got a backtrack. <laughs> you have to figure out where was I? Yeah, what where was, was I? this about? Yeah. That's the 25 minute. This is the general pattern. So when you're interrupted from a project, it's 
25 and a half minutes on average before you resume work on that interrupted project. Now, you're not daydreaming. You're not looking out the window for 25 and a half (laughs) minutes, although you might be, but generally you're not. Generally, you're keeping busy, and then you switch, and you start working on another project, and then you switch again, work on another project, switch again. We're talking about on average. You start to work on another project, and then you go back to the first one. Yeah, I want to say that I saw you lay it out like there's an A project, a B project, a C project, and then a D project. Generally, like four would be maybe the average before you cycle back to that A project. So you can think of it as interruptions are nested. You're getting interrupted, and then you're getting interrupted from that and interrupted from that. So it's no wonder that people are getting exhausted. It's no wonder (laughs) they have a disruption (laughs) cost. Because there's a lot of information to keep track of. Yeah, you say yet another cost of multitasking is that it is associated with negative emotions, anxiety, stress, and burnout. Email, one of the main culprits for distraction, is especially associated with stress. And you've done experiments where you had workplaces get rid of email. Mm, yes. And what? what happened? Email's so pernicious. Is that the right I word? I hate email, but how would we survive? I know. I have a solution for it, but and I pitched it to you. You didn't like it. Oh. I was determined to see if we could create an environment where people could be better focused and less stressed. And I thought the way to do it is let's cut off email for a while. And this enables us to look at causality. You have a condition, you change something, and then if you see some kind of difference, you know it's because that thing you changed caused it. So I was looking for six years to find an organization willing to let me cut off. Fuck up email. their whole business That's for yeah. a week. At least just some people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And things just kept falling through. And I was pretty upset. So finally, I get invited to do a talk at this one organization. And when I was there, I thought, ah, this would be a good place to make a pitch. Yeah, they already because, believe in you. They invited you. Yeah, and they were complaining about email. Mm. And they kept saying, oh my God. Gosh, email is the worst thing. It's hurting our productivity. I thought, perfect. So it turns out that the executive committee was meeting the next day, and they agreed to let me make a pitch. I stand in from this long conference table with heads of all the departments along the side, and the director of the organization was at the other end. And it was this person who was an ex-military officer. I was just going to say, let me guess, he's a white male? It was a woman. Oh, yeah. I'm glad to be woman. Wrong. And she had a really commanding presence. And so I start to give the pitch. The ex military officer starts shaking her head. No. And all the heads ah. along the side just start shaking their heads. <laughs> yeah. So that's halo effect. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was so desperate. You know, I had tried for six years, so I did a Hail Mary pass. And I said, it's like the military. What if a soldier is taken out in the field? How can the rest of the people in the unit reconfigure and communicate? And I said, it's like email. You know, you take one person out of email. How can the rest of the team reconfigure and communicate? And she got it because she was thinking like a military commander. And she started nodding. Mm. And everybody, of course, takes their cue from her and they start nodding. And that's how I was able to get permission to cut off email. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. 
We are supported by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Monica, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? I want to say I would write and read my New Year's resolution. Yeah, uh, I would too. That would yeah. be the same. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities. So you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot DAX. We are supported by Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can do much more than build a website. You can also sell custom merch. Guys, this is what we do on Squarespace. We have a merch team and we offer it all on a website beautifully built by WobbyWob on Squarespace. Simply design your products and production, inventory, and shipping are all handled for you. With Squarespace, it doesn't matter what you sell, physical goods, digital products, services, they have all the tools you need to start selling online. Just take one of their professional website templates, then customize the look, update the content, and add features to fit your unique needs. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so you can stand out online on any device. For a free trial, just head to squarespace.com DAX. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code DAX to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. We are supported by Sleep Number. Sleep is so important for your overall health and well-being. And if you don't get enough of it, there could be some serious negative impacts. So how do you make sure you get some quality rest? Well, it starts with a good mattress, like the Sleep Number Smart Bed. It was designed for your one-of-a-kind, ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can take your sleep to the next level. Boy, I got to tell you, having just traveled back and forth to India and skipped 12 time zones, I get reminded of how absolutely imperative good sleep oh, is. Oh, it's so necessary. You cannot even feel like a human being you if you're can't. not. <laughs> the best part about Sleep Number is you can easily adjust your firmness. And while you sleep, Sleep Number smart beds automatically respond and adjust to your movements throughout the night. It's heaven. And if you want to improve your health and well-being, Sleep Number is where you should start. Sleep Number smart beds can show your ideal sleep and wake-up schedule and the best times for activity like working out and winding down. Sleep next level with a Sleep Number Smart Bed. It's the only bed that lets you adjust each side to your ideal firmness and comfort. Your Sleep Number setting. Only at Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com. In this example that I read about, what's so logical and obvious once it's pointed out, the goal would have been bosses would have to walk to their employees' desk or call them on the phone and talk to them if they needed something done. If they wanted to unleash a task onto somebody, they'd have to kind of get up and go see them to do it or call them. And so what happened? The task just went right down, right? That's right. There was this one example of this person I talk about. His job was actually setting up lab experiments in this organization. It was a little bit unusual for the rest of the work there. And he never had like a two-hour block of time to be able to set it up 
because he would get work delegated to him. When email was cut off, his boss could have just walked down the hall and given him the task, and he didn't. Yes, that's the problem with email. There's no barrier of entry. There's no cost associated with it. Any whimsical idea you can have fired off in two seconds. Even the minimum, like, is this worth me walking across the hall? Even that cost analysis isn't even in the mix. And if you just introduce walk across the hall, half of your ideas aren't going to be deployed. That's crazy. Yeah. I read that and I was like, am I abusing anyone over email like are there things that if i had to pick up the phone and call rob i wouldn't then but i don't think i'm abusing it too much but i can see where you would just get in a pattern of every little whimsical thought you have you send off an email so the burden is on the recipient of the email because things are being asked of the recipient. The sender gets the benefit. The sender asks you for information, asks you to do work. And the recipient, this poor person, (laughs) is inundated with all these requests. That's why email, at least for people who work in what's called a knowledge workplace, email represents work for them Mm -hmm. and stress. It's a symbol of work. My thoughts on email are because it's always happening, it's not scheduled. And then you have a great bit of statistics involved in one of your presentations. You compare from 1965 to now how often people were at their desks in 1965 versus how often they were in meetings. Now, time at their desk has doubled. It's more than doubled. So this actually was studied back in the 60s and 70s. People shadowed people in the workplace and timed them and looked at what proportion of their day they sat at their desk. And it was something like 35% of the day. So people walked around a lot more. They were at face-to-face meetings. And in 2019, just before the pandemic, we did a study where we had tracked seven. 150 people for a year. And we used wearable sensors. Biometric stuff. Yeah, so we could get their step count. We used other sensors so we could see if they were at their desk in the office. And we found that about 90% of the time they were at their desk. So it's jumped. What's changed in the meantime? Well, so much technology has come on the scene. And so a lot of what had formerly been done in face-to-face meetings is now being done on the desktop, desktop conferencing through Zoom, through email, email, through Slack. That's replaced a lot of these formally scheduled face-to-face meetings. Okay, now, and then this seems to me with the price that you would pay is that if I'm a boss and I need all these things executed, right? And I have a meeting at one, the burden's on me. I compile everything I got to tell Jill or Sarah or Michael in that meeting. So I myself am responsible for assessing everything I need from this person. I got to dedicate a chunk of time to it. And I got to go, oh, I need these nine things done the next 24 hours, 48 hours this week. So now I've compressed everything that I need into one message. And then for the recipient, it's scheduled so they know it's coming. And my pitch, and I remember saying this to you, Monica, when the emails were just super overwhelming before we had any help. And this is how I do it. I have time slots. So my morning starts at seven. I do all these different things, writings involved, whatever. I don't pick up the phone until the writing's done, the meditation's done, the whatever's done. 
So now I have a block because I gotta take my kids to school. So that is my block to deal with emails. And then I have another block that's about an hour long post interviews. I can't do anything in these interviews. That's why I fucking love this job is I can't respond to anything. I have allowed myself to have a bubble I exist in for hours at a time. And I really just give myself two periods of emailing a day. I know people will say, well, so much stuff is time sensitive, great. Stuff isn't really as time sensitive as anyone thinks, first of all. And again, that goes to the burden that should be on the sender of these emails. They too should be compressing everything into one email. That's one list of the nine things I need you to do. I just think one of the solutions is everyone just needs to schedule this and not be at the whimsy of the sender and the endless plug-in. I totally agree. And I think organizations should have a certain time allotted to electronic communications. This is the time when you do your electronic communications and then after that, forget it. Yeah, like maybe you get twice a day. Like before lunch, you're allowed to yes. send one out and at the end of the day, you're allowed to send whatever. But you're only allowed to send emails between, you know, 11 and 12 and three and four. So we found that people on average check email 77 times a day. <laughs> we logged their computer activities, so we were able to get objective measures. The first year we did it, we found 74 times a day checking. This second year we did it 77 times. So if email were sent out twice a day, people wouldn't be checking 77 times yeah. a day. Their attention would be focused for maybe two times a day. Right. But it is dependent because like you said, for this show, if we're recording, yeah, then I'm checking email five, ten times. <laughs> but if it's a day where we're not recording, I'm just refreshing it to make sure I'm not missing something all day long. But I guess that's what this job has taught me. I'm super privileged. But once you build, and this is essentialism, that book, Essentialism. Yeah. Like, once you decide you have an apex priority, for me, it's being present in these exactly. interviews. You come to find out all the things that everyone thinks are so time sensitive. They're just not. It's an illusion of time sensitivity. I agree. And if you read your email in reverse chronological order, you realize how information ages oh, really yes. fast. It's not beneficial to look at your email as soon as it comes in. Wait until the end of the day and then you'll see the problem has been taken care of. Yeah, but this to me is a top-down problem. Because if you're at a big corporation, you are evaluated on how good of an employee you are is based on how quickly you're responding, how on top of it you are. And you're getting compared to other people and it does make a difference. Who's getting promoted? I see it happen around me. And what can but, but you do if it's not coming from the top? That's yeah. what's great about Gloria. She's pushing for a cultural shift because she'll be quick to point out if you are available, it means you're shittier at your job that you've really been hired for, right? <laughs> the solution has to come at the organizational level. It actually should yeah. come at the societal level, but organizations need to have some common time for all employees. This is when you do electronic communications. Then no individual is penalized for not checking you're great at pointing out they have the data. So, of course, an employer wants an immediate response from their employee. That's appealing. Unless they find out by making your employee available, the job you've hired them to do is suffering. Exactly. So the real task, the A, B, C, and D tasks of the day 
are getting worse. So you yourself as the employer, you just have to prioritize what thing is more valuable to me, constant communication or them executing the job I hired them to do. And I think that's a cultural mindset that has to be exposed, explained. There is a cost benefit. They're actually losing money. I totally agree. But let me push back on something you said about the sender should list all the nine things that they want you to do. Are you going to read an email that's this long that has nine different things for you to do? I probably would not. I might do three or four of the things. Well, here's why I suggest that is so often you're responding to the one thing. You finish that. An hour later, it's this thing. And then it says, you realize you could have grouped three of those things. Oh, I was already across the street at the clients. I could have brought up these three things, right? You are now empowered to organize what their cumulative wish list is for you. You can at least put them in sections where they become more efficient. But if it's Go get me coffee, also do this thing, also blank. Well, I was already out. I could have got your lunch when I got your coffee. A totality of the responsibilities allows you then to plan with some efficiency. I think what you're saying is that the burden should be on the sender to do the work. They should do the work to organize requests in such a way that it's cognitively easier, it's more efficient on the recipient. I accept your pushback. So then you're saying as well, learn to edit. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> learn to think more comprehensively. I don't want to blow by the thing you just said too, because I guess I'm quoting you on that too, and I've never known. But someone pointed out to me, they gave me this great tip, which is if you're on vacation for a week, a lot of people can relate to this. And you come back, your instinct is to go through it chronologically, start on the day after you left. But someone told me, if you read them in reverse, everything's been handled. <laughs> That's like right. really 5% of the requests are still remaining. And then what the book Essentialism argues for is people actually really respect people who have those boundaries. You think you're gonna be a shitty employee and get a bad review and that this is all gonna be detrimental to you. But in fact, there's some good data to suggest, no, people want to work with people with boundaries. They respect them more. They value their opinion more. Ultimately, in the long-term view, it's beneficial to have those. Yeah, it may be hard for some people to construct those boundaries. And so if you had organizational norms changing, it would make it a lot easier for everyone to yeah. be able to construct those boundaries. Some individuals might be able to do it very easily, but others, it might be more of a challenge. So they need some scaffolding. Yeah. yeah. So that's one thing. That's emails, which of course are largely driven by your clients or your employer or whatever. But the technology itself, you have a great quote in here. A wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a need to allocate that attention efficiently. So we live in a paradigm that gives us a lot more responsibility or we'll be victims to it. Now every single thing is available. It creates a new problem. So what are some other distractions people find themselves being pulled towards? Yeah. By the way, the quote is from Herb Simon. The okay. Nobel Prize winner. He won the Nobel Prize for economics, but he worked as a computer scientist. Manfred Herbert. <laughs> You're hitting us with all the turn-of-the-century names today. <laughs> so what are the other common distractions? Well, the big one is social media. Oh, yeah. You know, I've studied people in the workplace for a long time, and they talk about being distracted by social media. For some people, it's more of a pull than others. It's hard to stay away from it, but it's also hard once you're in it to pull yourself out of 
the rabbit hole. So I talk about it in the book as a an attention trap. There's different attention traps that we find on the internet, and that's one of them. Would this be your third myth? Is this what this falls into? The third myth is that the distractions, interruptions, and multitasking we experience while on our devices are due primarily to the notifications we receive and to our own lack of discipline. We receive social rewards when we interact with others. We bow to peer pressure, we respond to power, and we want to maintain a net positive account of social capital with our colleagues and friends, which in turn drives us to keep checking email and social media. So I still think we really underestimate how important social standing is to us as a species and how much it's driving. So it feels stupid, social media, is life or death wiring. If you don't have a social network, you're not reciprocating resources and you're dead. Yeah, the myth that I talk about is people say the reason why we're distracted is because of targeted algorithms and notifications and because our lack of willpower. And it's true. I'm not going to argue against that. Those are reasons why we're distracted. But there's so many other reasons as well. And you hit on one of them. The idea that we have social natures and there's so many social aspects that are involved in using the internet. For example, social capital. The internet, it's a marketplace of social capital where I get resources from you, you want resources from me. We do this trading in social capital. Influence. We're influenced. Everyone wants to increase the number of likes Mm -hmm. that they get when they post something. Our identities are wrapped up in the internet. Irving Goffman talks about how we present ourselves to others. We do impression management. In the physical world, You get it. You understand the impression that you can make on other people, right? Let's say you go to a party, you're careful in what you wear and who you talk with. But on the internet, people do impression management in their profiles that they create, in who they interact with, and of course, power. There's social power on the internet as well. So us as social beings is also a very strong reason for why we're distracted. Yeah, we always talk about it in such a negative way, myself included. But if you think about it, there is something kind of democratizing about finding your social standing on the internet. Because if the three of us walk into a room, I'm 6'2". As us little primates, us monkeys, the other people in the room subconsciously, I have a different impact on them. That's not fair. Just because you guys were genetically born shorter or you're female, all these social constructs that we walk in, that's one upside of the internet world and social capital is that you can kind of create Anyone something. can be a star. Yes. <laughs> I like that movie, The Social Dilemma, where they say it's both utopia and dystopia. On some level, it's kind of great now that people get to be a little more in charge of the impression they make. Yes, you have it in your control the way you want others to see you. Yeah, if you've got a big limp, us primates, you walk in and everyone's going to observe that. That just becomes a whole thing. No one can avoid that. But you don't have to have that on social media. That's right. There's something sweet about that. But then you're distorting your true set. That's why everything's so curated. It's not you. It's the best version or the prettiest version or you without a limp. We all have limps. I agree. But then if you think about it where, okay, that's not you, but also bullshit, you live in a society where that's against you for your whole life. It gets people to try out the world without having a limp. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What would the world be like for me? And that part's kind of sweet. It is. I think what the result is is ultimately bad, which is everyone's distorting themselves. 
Well, I think what's bad is, yeah, There's it, nothing authentic, it, it makes really. it less and less appealing to go into the real world because you yeah. are doing better in this Fake virtual yeah, world. Right. But what's great is like the high school quarterback from my high school, he probably sucks at social media. Like he's probably taking it at a wrong angle. His background's messy. Like, it's kind of great that he doesn't have an upper hand on social media. <laughs> that part is kind of leveling. Yes. If we point true. out one good thing about it. <laughs> That's true. Or simple chronic halitosis. We talk about that. You have no clue who has simple chronic halitosis. Yeah, I want to know about that. <laughs> Not if you're just interacting. Like, if you go on a date, yes. Yeah. But anything short of a date, why do you care? <laughs> I still care. So I don't think we should get rid of social media like a lot of people claim. You know, it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are positive aspects to social media. The fact that you can connect with people who you haven't seen for years. You can get resources. Let's say you want to find an apartment or you want to know where to go on vacation. You ask people in your social network. You get a much wider set of responses than you would if you just called up one person. We tend to only focus on the Kardashians, but we don't focus on the fact that 30% of people who are so introverted, they would have had no connection in life. They're joined in the party. That's a great part of it, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so one of the other myths that I found interesting is flow. So we've kind of fetishized the state of flow. I'm the biggest proponent of fetishizing it because I happen to have a job where flow happens about six, seven times a week. So I love it. I'm a disciple of flow. But tell us about the concept of flow and how it doesn't really lend itself all that well to all kinds of different occupations. That's right. Flow was named by the psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Now that one takes Try the cake it. for names today. <laughs> it took me a while to nail it, but I got it. So Shiksamehali, as a child, was interned in a camp in Italy because his father worked for the Hungarian government and Hungary was implicated in the war. And so this was a traumatic experience for the young child. And so to kind of shield out the horrors of the war, he played chess. And he learned to play chess and he got so immersed in chess. And then after the war, he came to the U.S., eventually went to University of Chicago, got a Ph.D. in psychology. But he was influenced by his chess playing experience. And he wanted to understand what is it that makes people do things that they just love. They're so intrinsically motivated to do even risk-taking activities like rock climbing. What would lead them to do it? And this is what set him off to study the idea that eventually became called flow. And flow is the optimal experience. Flow is about using your skill in an optimal way. So if you don't use your skill enough, you're not going to go into flow. If something becomes too hard, you don't have the skill to be able to do that activity, you're not going to go into flow. There's some optimal point. You know, if you're playing sports, imagine you're playing soccer and everything is like magic. Everything just works together. You're at your optimal level of skill. You're in flow. I would say, I think these are components of it. For me, an abstraction of time is always like a great clue that I'm in a state yes. of flow, right? When I experience time much differently and or lose complete sense of time, which is 
heavenly. Exactly. That's one of the main components of flow. You just become completely unaware of the passage of time because you're so immersed oh, in, in this thinking. It's activity. the most euphoric yeah. state. It's great. And when I was an artist, I got into flow very often. Mm-hmm. And I lived in Ohio when I was in art school. I had a shortwave radio that picked up Radio Havana in the middle of the night. Oh, wow. And I used to listen to the songs on Radio Havana, and I'd be dancing and (laughs) painting. And I was just in flow. And time just passed by. I would paint through the night. In fact, during this period, I kept a journal. And then I went back and read this journal years later, and I don't have a clue what I was talking about. It made absolutely no sense I read that, and that made me sad. Yeah, but I <laughs> I have no idea. But whatever it was, I was in this like flow state. state. Yeah. Fast forward and now I do research and I use a very different kind of thinking and I rarely get into flow. I use analytical thinking. I plan studies, I collect data, I analyze data. Once in a while, I'll get into flow. So if I'm brainstorming, with people might get into flow. Sometimes if I'm analyzing data and I just kind of go off on my own, I might get into flow, but for the most part, not. Is it bad? No, it's not bad. It's different. Mm. It's different. And I don't expect to get into flow for the kind of work I do now. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing because it's very rewarding what I do. And that's the important thing for it to be rewarding. So are you saying it's wrong to chase flow? I'm not sure. Well, if we're dispelling a myth and flow is one of the myths. It's very tied to the nature of the work you're doing. And the myth is that people who are doing knowledge work, for the most part, should not expect that they're going to get into flow because of the nature of the work they're doing. Yeah. There might be some aspects of your work where you can get into flow. But chances are, you know, you're going to be using sustained attention, but that doesn't mean you're getting into flow. It just means you're focusing, you're concentrating. It's not accessible necessarily for every single career or passion. Right. Okay, the fourth one is really fun too. The fourth myth that is widely shared is that the rote mindless activity we do on our computers and phones has no value. This was a bit of shocking Mm. data, I thought. The happiness was heightened. That was a little bit shocking. Tell us about the different activities that one does at work and that being one of them and how they differ. When I was studying attention, I realized that there have to be different kinds of attention. Philosophers and psychologists have talked about different kinds of attention, but there seems to be this common narrative that there's just two states of attention. You're focused or you're unfocused. You're focused or you're distracted. And I thought, well, it has to be more nuanced than that. Because if you're engaged in something, you could be engaged and challenged like if you're reading something. You can also be very engaged in something and not challenged at all, you know, playing some mindless game. You use Candy Crush as your example. I use example. Candy Crush, <laughs> although I don't play Candy Crush. So Me either. One of my favorite writers, Maya Angelou, she talked about having big mind and little mind. And her big mind, this is her thinking when she would do her deep creative work. 
And her little mind was the simple rote activity she did. She would hole up in a hotel room and do her writing. And she'd bring with her crossword puzzles and a writing tablet. And her little mind was when she would do these crossword puzzles. It kept her mind engaged, lightly engaged. Mm -hmm. But she was not doing anything challenging. And so little mind was really important to her creative process. It played a supporting role. And it was through Little Mind that she was able to achieve her great work. And you see this a lot in different writers and scientists. The philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said that when he peeled potatoes, he had his greatest thoughts. Whoa. Mm. Peeling potatoes, that's just rote work. I have a fun one for you. Buster Keaton, so he had his own studio. And at the studio, he had all the sets he could shoot, but they didn't really work off scripts. They would just come up with really complicated set pieces and bits for him to do physically. So they'd shoot for a while and they'd run out of ideas. And his two things were he had a baseball diamond at his studio. And so everyone would go play baseball. And while they're playing baseball, they'd start thinking of new bits. And then his other thing was Pinnacle. So they'd either break to play baseball or play Pinnacle. Mm. And for him, those were the sources of all these ideas that he'd end up shooting. That's such a perfect example. In studying attention, what we would do is we would send them these probes. A probe is simply just a really short questionnaire, like two questions. And we would send them to them on their computers or phones and say, for the thing you're doing right now, how challenged were you and how engaged were you? You know, just report for the thing you were doing right now. We collected this data and then we found that there do seem to be these different attentional states. We're able to find differences. Sometimes people are engaged and challenged. Sometimes they're engaged and not challenged. Sometimes they're not engaged and not challenged, in which case they're bored, or you're really challenged and you're just not engaged. We label that frustrated. And then we looked at when were people the happiest, and they were the happiest doing this kind of rote, simple, very lightly engaged mindless activity. Engaged but not challenged. Right. Yeah, and that's counterintuitive a little bit to me. I guess I would have expected people when they were engaged and challenged to be happiest. But that's like the narrative self. They'll be happiest at night but not experientially happy while they're doing it. Maybe you might feel more fulfilled, but at the time you're doing it, You're happiest when you do something mindless. Like shopping. Watching your videos, your cooking videos. Yeah, shopping. Yeah, that too. (laughs) Monica's apex happiness is cooking videos and and online shopping. Those are pretty (laughs) rote. If it makes you happy, why not? But it also gives you a chance to replenish your cognitive resources, your attentional resources, because maybe you're just drained. So it's time to pull back from doing that focused work, and do something light. Yeah, take a little break. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by The Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, The Defender 110 is up for adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. For a start, the exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender 110's legendary capability lets you go further and do more, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Its durability 
capability has been tested to the extreme. It can handle your equipment, too, as the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Explore with greater confidence with powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display, an award-winning infotainment system, and innovative camera technologies. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.5% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA member FDIC. Terms apply. We are supported by HelloFresh. You know, there are days when it's really hard to decide what to eat. You stare blankly into the fridge for what feels like hours with no success. And you end up hangry. Well, I've got a solution. HelloFresh, they deliver fresh ingredients and chef-curated recipes straight to your home. And they even take care of the meal planning. I love it because... I always text Callie, what should I eat for dinner? Okay, you ask her a lot. Uh, Yeah, because I get stressed and overwhelmed. And she doesn't know. And so HelloFresh is so great if I have it because then it's all there. I don't have to make any decisions. Well, what did you get into last night? Ooh, last night I had a, you know I love prosciutto. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't? so good. I had a prosciutto-wrapped chicken and it had a truffle chive mashed potatoes and a lemony broccoli. It was delicious. Oh, my goodness. Go to HelloFresh.com slash DAXFREE and use the code DAXFREE for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life. Available for a limited time at HelloFresh.com slash DAXFREE with the code DAXFREE. So you have a term you use, kinetic attention, and you've studied now a lot of the amount of rapidly shifting attention people have. What is it that you found? What's the average length of time people are really focusing on a screen? When we first started measuring this, this is all measured empirically, objectively. Back in 2004, we found the average attention duration on a screen to be two and a half minutes. More recently, we find it to reach a steady state of about 47 seconds. <laughs> this has been replicated by other researchers as well. My graduate student, right before the pandemic, studied 50 information workers for a period of 30 days and found the average span to be 44 seconds, which is roughly the same. What does that mean? Like they'll open a different tab, they'll go over to their email, they'll go to a different website? Yes, it could oh. be any so of these things. So you're staring at the same screen, but you're not staying... No, you're actually shifting screens. You're switching browser tabs. But same device. Same device, but looking at a very different screen. And the real kicker is that people are almost as likely to self-interrupt to do this switching as they are to be interrupted by some external source, like a notification, a person calling, wow. someone coming into your office. We're trained. 
So like a one-to-one ratio? Self-interruption is about 44% of the time. And that's your urge to check social media or you have this memory to do something, but something is just compelling you to switch your thinking. You'll probably push back on this, but do we think it's potentially, I don't know if you read Anna Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation, it's so good, but that we're all living in an extreme dopamine deficit disorder. In about every 47 seconds, your body needs more dopamine. It's a, You're being driven by a drop in your dopamine. That could be it. I think a lot of this is conditioning. The reason I say it's conditioning is that we looked at the external interruptions and internal interruptions on an hourly basis. And we find that when external interruptions drop, your self-interruptions compensate. It's like we're just determined to keep interrupting ourselves. If we're not getting it from something outside of ourselves, we're interrupting from within ourselves. Or so habitual. We just get into these patterns and then we don't even know we're in them. That's why I refer to attention as being kinetic and dynamic. Well, here's a great hack. You didn't suggest it in your book, but now that I'm thinking about it, you should read your email out loud to yourself. And if it takes more than 44 seconds, you got to know they're not getting through it. (laughs) Oh, that's a good call. That's very good. Yeah. Yeah, you're the best you're going to get out of somebody is 44 seconds of their attention. So you better better come out swinging. You better get to the point quickly. That's not good for this show. They're two hour long shows. Thank you. I earmarked it and I never came back to it. So I think that shows like this, long form things are a little bit of an antidote. I think they're great for our attention spans. You have an experience that, although you're engaged in this, it's likely a 90 minutes of freedom from the checking. Sometimes people do something else while they're listening to podcasts. Well, they're always, they're driving or they're working now. But if you tried, I've been listening to a podcast and tried to look at Instagram and I have to stop. I actually can't do both. That's true. So I think if you're actually listening to the whole episode, I've not met the person that can do both. Truly, where you got to focus on both. Or they're just missing chunks. Which could be fine too. There's tons (laughs) of chunks of this. Yeah, Yeah, probably get rid of. You know, we try our best with the edit, but certainly there's some (sighs) fat. And that's where we get into the kind of prescriptive element of the book, which is you urge people to think of their attention as having a fuel tank. And there's ways to fill the fuel tank and there's ways you deplete the fuel tank. Yes. Sleep, number one, fills the fuel tank, right? We wake up, hopefully, after a good night's sleep with a pretty full tank. And then you also point out that we have optimal hours of work. There are rhythms we found when people have focused attention. And we found that, you know, this is on average, people tend to be at their peak focus late morning around 11 a.m. And then there's another peak in the afternoon about 3 p.m. Wow. My first thought was like, okay. That's our schedule. Well, kind of is our schedule, luckily. If we do two a day, it's generally at 11 and then at two. And then so we blow through both those areas But I was also thinking about like if you have to pitch somebody something, if you're trying to sell a product to somebody and you have any say over what time of day you'll be pitching them, obviously you should be aiming at 11 or 3. Yeah, that's generally speaking when most people are at the peak of their attentional capacity. Hmm. Now, people have different chronotypes. If you're an early type, you might peak much earlier. If you're a late type, your peak is much later. So, you know, of course, it's individual. How would someone without being studied in one of your experiments discover their own rhythm? 
There's a survey you can take mm. to find out your chronotype. Oh. It's called a morningness, eveningness questionnaire, and there's a link to it in the Oh, amazing. Book. We'll do it on the fact check. Oh, that would be great. I already know mine, but yes. Okay, but it would be okay, so Yeah, I'll pretend I don't know mine. You might be surprised. Okay. So that's one thing, but you can also, you know, I had my students do this as an exercise. They did the same kind of probing for themselves that I did for participants in the workplace. Now, you know, these are computer science students, so they're very savvy and they could program probes to come at random times, but you can just set a little timer every hour or so and just evaluate what's your level of cognitive resources. If you want to be more precise, you can ask how challenged or engaged you are. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. Okay, great. Lastly, we're going to talk about the goals people could set for themselves in this very, very challenging landscape. Again, good luck to everyone. It's all so appealing and there's noises and lights. You know, it's a slot machine. But you have some specific goals, balance being maybe the objective. Could you walk us through what someone should try to set for themselves or aim towards? Yeah. What I argue for is to reframe our discussion when we use our devices, instead of trying to achieve the utmost productivity, to think about achieving well-being. It's called psychological homeostasis. It's when you have two components of your autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic and sympathetic system. The sympathetic system is your fight or flight component where you're really stressed. And when that dominates, it's just really bad for your system. And it's bad for mental health. It can lead to hypertension. And so let's think when we use our devices of ways that we can use them so that we can achieve positive well-being, a net positive at the end of the day. And know when you should pull back. Know when you're starting to feel exhausted. Pull back, replenish yourself. Ideally, you want to take a walk, but if you can't, then do some road activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you also say learn to observe when your mind's wandering away. Yeah, meta-awareness. So when the pandemic hit, My university offered a free course in mindfulness, mindfulness mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I found this course really interesting. It made me think, how can I apply this to my behavior when I use my device? And so I realized that I can. When you do mindfulness, it's about keeping your attention in the present, focusing on your breathing. You're not thinking about the past where there's regret. You're not thinking about the future where there's anxiety, but staying in the present. And I realized that if people could stay in the present and really focus on their actions, what they're doing on their devices, it's about bringing unconscious activity into our conscious awareness. So if I am very tempted to, let's say, go on a news site, or I'm tempted to go to social media I can keep asking myself questions. Do I really need to read the news right now? Or if I'm reading the news, okay, have I gotten enough value from reading this article? If not, stop, get back to work. This is a new obsession of mine, mostly aimed at my mother. I think a great question to ask yourself when you're interested in the news is, what will I do with the information once I get it? If there's nothing for you to apply and or you could admit you're not going to apply. You're not going to stand up and go march to Congress and hold a sign. 
if you can be honest with yourself and just ask yourself, what will I do with the information I'm about to receive? Will I just get angry? Is that the outcome of it? Will I get encouraged? Will I go to a dinner party and get them angry about it? What will be the outcome of me having this information? I think is just a responsible question to ask yourself. That is so great. Mm-hmm. I love oh, that. Good. I'm I'm going to try to ask myself that. that mm-hmm. You, you did. <laughs> so... You know, the thing is, what I do for a living is observe people. I'm a professional observer of behavior. And so when I started thinking about this idea of meta-awareness, I really thought of how can I become a professional observer of myself, of my own behavior. And the way to do that is to keep yourself in the present, keep asking yourself questions, and especially to ask yourself questions about your level of cognitive resources. Where am I? Am I exhausted? If so, take a break. Go do something else, replenish. Otherwise, I would work myself through to exhaustion. Well, also, it gets harder and harder to recognize that as you get more and more drained. You say the more drained you are, the more distractible you are. So if you don't stay on top of it when you have the mental resources and capacity, you actually can lose the ability to assess that as you get more and more stressed and drained. That's right. And you also lose the ability to guard against distractions. There's this really interesting study that was done. They gave people over a six-hour period a series of tasks, and really hard tasks like remembering numbers, and they had to do it over the course of the day. And then they gave people periodically throughout the day a choice, which was just like the marshmallow test. You could get an immediate reward of monetary value, or if you wait a little bit, you would get a higher reward. And as the day wore on and people were doing these hard tasks, their delay of gratification waned. Their ability to delay got weaker and weaker. And at the end of the day, they were just taking the immediate You know, this is an interesting road all recovering addicts have to cross. What took me a very long time to admit to myself is that sober Dax can create a perfect game plan for the evening. That's very easy for me to do. But Dax with two drinks has a much different point of view of the third drink than sober Dax had. And then Dax with three has an even different point of view, what four and five and six years. And to recognize that, oh, when I do this, the person I think's in charge will no longer be in charge. So I need to have a plan. Like that's a relevant aspect. And the drinking is a metaphor for what the day does to you in a sense. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it. Another A. Another A. Goodness. Oh my goodness. I might not need to do any extra career. Well, according to you, maybe a (laughs) five. Okay, then the last thing I want you to talk about is Parkinson's Law. This is another thing I don't think we're necessarily aware of at all times. So if you allot 30 minutes for a task, you'll probably do it in 30 minutes. If you allot four hours, you'll use the four hours. Mm. This Parkinson's Law is kind of a fascinating thing. I think most people don't even have a target for anything. Like I do think we a little bit stumble along our day, and when we don't have the target, Will we then blow right past it? Being conscious and mindful of what you're about to do and thinking about what time allotment you're going to give it is imperative if you want to execute. You know, we can deceive ourselves. And let's say you have to write a report. You can buckle down and do it in 30 minutes if that's your goal. But if you know you've got four hours, you might be very tempted to 
go off to social media, mm-hmm. check your email, because you've got four hours to do it. You know, I'll do five do minutes in. here, then I'll do eight minutes there. Yeah. It's better to be efficient and blast through that task as long as you're not getting yourself exhausted. That's really important. And then you can reward yourself. Yeah, cocaine, whatever your preference, your reward preferences. No, we're not going to push cocaine. <laughs> okay. Also, just the last thing is, because I found this to be a little bit encouraging. Every time we talk about AI, it's under the veil of total scariness. <laughs> and I'm, in general, a little bit scared about it. But you did say it will eventually start handling the simple problems and leave us to deal with the ones that humans are good at, which are the ambiguous, nuanced yes. ones. Yes. So what does that future for us look like? Well, I would say it is a little bit mixed. It's good news that we won't have to do boring, mundane, repetitive work. We can do more thinking tasks. But at the same time, it's probably going to be more taxing on our attention because we're going to be faced with a lot more difficult problems Mm -hmm. to do. That's what humans are good at. It's probably going to be a mixed bag. It's almost like as we incorporate all this technology, there's some things we're going to have to rethink. So in that event where you've offloaded half of your job to AI, it's conceivable to me that maybe the workday, which used to be an eight-hour day, maybe since it is high level, high stress, high demand, challenging thinking we're going to do that, really we might only have the capacity for six hours a day of work. Possibly. What a cultural shift that would have to be. Yeah. 30-minute work days. Um, From now on. It seems (laughs) a little short. I'm declaring it. Well, I mean, when you think about it, maybe we want to allot longer blocks of time, especially to spend in contemplation of a task, right? Yeah. When you read about some of the most impressive thinkers we've got, a common thing for them is to schedule free time, absent time. I know Bill Gates has days, you know, weeks in the month. That's just his time to sit on a couch and think. And it's so vital being able to claim these areas because you recognize they do have a value that ultimately the net result will be very positive and more efficient and more productive. As counterintuitive as to think like I'm going to schedule an hour a day on a couch. It's hard to declare that, but the rewards might be there. Oh, absolutely. Well, I got to tell you something, Gloria. This was a blast. I'm not shocked. You're a neighbor from Ohio. (laughs) They try to pit us against each other in that Ohio State game, but we're not going to allow it. Are you from Michigan? Yes, I'm from Michigan. How the hell else would I know about Cedar Point? Of course. Yes, Sandusky, Ohio. (laughs) Well, it's been a total pleasure getting to talk to you. I hope everyone checks out Attention Span, Finding Focus and Fighting Distraction. It's rare that someone comes in and has a book that pertains to 100% of the listeners, right? Yeah. It's almost impossible, but we are all interacting with all of this. We should all have a game plan. This has been so much fun. I just really enjoyed it. Oh, good. good. I hope everyone checks out Attention Span, and I hope we get to talk to you when you write your next book. Please come back. Thank you. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. Oh, we just had a heartwarming. My heart is full. Yeah. It really is. And I've prepared a song to capture that (coughs) feeling. Okay. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, Mm. but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, 
Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Man, it doesn't show signs. See that? I lost it. Okay. Yeah. Oh. The next line, I can you hit that line? I'm not gonna. But you know the cadence of it. It should be the same as the first one, right? But it's not. <laughs> Listen. I just want to get to this line. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I brought some corn for pip pip popping. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's what I like about these old Christmas songs is like it's also a glimpse back into the 30s or whenever they were written. Yeah. Like this dude was pumped because he shows up with fucking corn for popping. <laughs> it's so simple. Like, oh man, I can't wait for Roger to get here. You know he's bringing corn we for popping. We love that. I know. We love that now. You, no one has ever shown up to my house and they're like, I brought some corn for popping. Okay. Well we don't gather around the hearth and put it on a skillet and pop the corn. You pop it in the microwave. It's in a Absolutely. fucking disposable bag. It's a piece of shit experience. If you're doing it correctly, you are popping it on the oven. On stove. The oven. Okay. <laughs> you're, popping you're putting yours in the oven. Stop it. <laughs> you're popping it on the stove. Yeah. Sometimes you add some crumblies. Okay. And okay. not grumblies. No. Ooh. Ugh. That's a earmark that. Okay. Listen, I have been watching White Lotus at Callie and Max's. And a couple times ago, I brought corn for popping. You did? Yes. Oh, my God. We didn't pop it. Maybe you should write a Christmas song because you have the vibe. <laughs> okay, what are we earmarking about Grumblies? Oh, here's a quick one, though. Oh, the following Christ. line is, the lights are turned way down low. Yeah. They didn't have dimmers back when you were bringing corn for popping. That's a curious line. Oh. How did they turn the lights down low? They either turned them on or off. So he might, this is what the line a should fire? say. fire? You can lower the gas, right, to lower the... I bet it was fire. Oh, you're saying light. that they like a lantern. gas lanterns. <laughs> yeah. That's how far back this goes. Well, that that would work. Oh, my God. But what if this is, if the song was truthful, it'd say this. And I brought some corn for popping. The lights are turned all the way off. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. I'm glad you got to do that. <laughs> Again, this is the part where it's not fun, but it's liable to get fun. Oh, my God. We, but this who knows? This is just like the guests we had. You got to keep walking forward. That it's a, is it opens not up the... possibility. No, that was fun from the beginning. No, I know, but he's saying as a life directive. Oh. You can't be looking for the immediate result. Like, Look, you want this to be don't instantly turn funny. his beautiful <laughs> words into Listen, yourself. You, you want this to land immediately, and it might take a while. We might have to work for it. Also, one part he forgot to say is sometimes it's best to just not go there. Like the meme you sent me, which is like, go home, fucking quit. Because <laughs> an Indian guy. <laughs> you know. Doing an Indian accent. Well, I don't know if he was doing an Indian. <laughs> I think that was his accent. I hope. Actually, now that now I'm worried. What if it was a white person doing an Indian accent? Could have been a white person. It's, some of these white people are really good at it. It's hard to tell. Uh, speaking of, my dad's back from India. Oh, already? Yeah, he only went for one week. That feels too short with the amount of travel involved. I agree. How was his trip? What did he do? Did he confirm or can he deny that Molly is in great abundance over there? Um, Remember that's what I heard about Carol. You said that and I found no information about that and then right, it's hard to he didn't say i didn't ask was he rolling the whole time he's no okay. but he went to visit his brother and then he went to a, a temple to a family temple and it was lovely he had a good time he said it was really good okay great yeah i i'm dying to know what the weather was like i Ooh. guess it's 
It's on the equator, right? So it's the same no matter what. Will you, you look there. it up what it is today, temperature-wise, in probably, India? It's probably frightful. Carol, I'll tell you what it's not. It's frightful. <laughs> that was good, Rob. Robbie's very quick. You know, he'll get you with that uh, how uncommon when we you saw common at the airplane. You love that one so much. It's 91, 91 degrees in oh, Mumbai shit. right now. A balmy. That is hot How as hot is it in Kerala, though? Because that's a you're gonna get some K coastal breezes. K E R A L A. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't you dare do that. Why are you doing that? I just I, when I push my nose, it that turned into that. <laughs> K E R. Don't make me a monster. Oh no! This is the unlikable robot. <laughs> no, I oh. don't want to meet him. Stop, Dax. <laughs> Don't do this. My name is Bruce the Robot. <laughs> I think you met my cousin. He's much cuter than me. I'm kind of clumsy and stupid. Oh, no. They mostly use me to shovel heavy things. <gasps> oh. Sometimes I work on the engines. <laughs> I do a trick where I drink the motor oil. Oh, God. People say I smell. I wouldn't know because I don't have a nose. <laughs> Listen. He's kind of a... I'm sad about I him. Know, I know. Let's Why? not think about Greg. <laughs> or whatever he just Bruce, Bruce it's 79, <laughs> 79 Bruce. degrees. That sounds more like it. 79 in Kerala. High That's of 86, we low of oh, 77. Because, you know, Chef's kissy. beach weather. Beach weather, that coastal lifestyle. Wow. Molly, Molly, Molly. There's no yeah. Molly there. There's um, so much Molly. And swimming in it. he prayed for us, I think. Me. But you yeah, buy there's extension. no way. There's no. Do you think he goes there to put more coins in the simulation? He, I, I mean, he does. He did. He does go for spiritual reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, that's why you go to a temple. I'm gonna ask him if he. Oh, nope. What? Let's keep rolling. What? <laughs> okay. If if your father might have had an experience down there, would you be happy for him? Molly experience. And or then some, you sexual? know. Well, like maybe a Molly orgy. No, <laughs> you wouldn't want that uh -uh. for him. No. I would want for Laura to be in a Molly orgy. Great, if she enjoyed it. Sure. Yeah, I'm not you. <laughs> I know. I was just trying to find out how much. Yeah, no, we I don't similar. want that. I mean, okay. I want him to uh, be fulfilled. Right. But um, okay. he has some addictive qualities. I don't want him to get into. You get him hooked on drugs. Yeah. Mm -mm. <laughs> At sixty. Whatever he is. I feel like seven. Um, or nine. Oh, oh my God. He's yeah. getting old. I hate this. Okay. Do you think he went down there because he's 69? <laughs> 69. You got to make a pilgrimage when you're Stop. <laughs> you're so nasty. <laughs> Speaking of my Sex dad, pilgrimage. in the last fact check that we didn't do facts because we had Nev Campbell on, one of the things you said was that my dad came when he was 29 and he was 25. Okay, great. Just want to, that's important. Right. Okay. Now, we have something really fun to do today. Oh, what is that? A quiz. Oh. So we're going to do a quiz that will tell us about our morningness, eveningness sensibilities. Okay. We haven't done a quiz in a long time. Did you just fart? <laughs> Big one. Big one? Big boy. I didn't hear it. I had to elevate. Uh, myself off the chair a little bit to make space. You know how they say make space now? Everyone <laughs> says to make space. I'm not sure why that's so triggering to me because I'm sure I agree with the, what the sure. intention of that thing is. Yeah. You just but think man, it's for make... a lot of softies. No, it's just, uh, it's like so word of the day. It is. I yeah. agree. I agree. 
I'm just gonna make space for you. Well, anyways, I physically <laughs> and literally needed to make some space for between myself and the lazy boy. <laughs> I didn't hear anything. And I was really confident it would be odorless, and so far I was right. Thank goodness. How could you say it's a big one if it's silent and odorless? Well, again, I think because I lifted myself up, there wasn't any resistance. Right. And so I think uh, I was able to just drop the pocket of air. Oh, that sounds gross. No, yeah, but listen. Cut listen. That out, cut that <laughs> I'm out. leaving that in. No, cut listen. it out. I sounded like a fucking pig. Okay. <laughs> That's what you're that of all the things. Yeah, the butt fucking stuff and the Molly orgy. That stuff's fine. You're Your right. father engaged in Don't. his 69 pilgrimage. Stop. It's all clean. But yes, Ugh. the fact that I said, what did I say? Pocket, pocket, of, pocket air. of air. Pocket of air. It's like, Woo. Okay. That's, that's rank. Too you're, far. You're going to canceled for that. Your <laughs> barometer is all, all is. askew. All right. Normally, when you fart, in order to make sure it doesn't stink, you would not lift up. If there was, you were on a fabric that was absorbent. I'm on leather, so it would just reflect right immediately <laughs> back. Well, it would just go back in your butt. But I thought you were about to say what a wise man once said, which is, if you fart <laughs> in church, you sit in on pew. Which is a great, it's a great observation. It's one of the best. Also, wise men once said, if you go to bed with an itchy butt, you wake up with a stinky finger. Ew. Oh, God. Oh, well, these it's are way worse than the pocket of air. <laughs> no, I think pocket sounds gross. All right, let's take our question now. Yeah. Okay, ready? Okay. Approximately what time would you get up if you were entirely free to plan your day? There's brackets. There's like 5 to 6.30 a.m. Oh, what a joke. Yeah, I know. 6.30 to 7.45 a.m., 7.45 to 9.45 a.m., 9.45 to 11 a.m., 11 to noon, and then noon to 5. Okay, so if you're on night shift, I guess. Noon to 5 a.m. I don't think this is too talking out of school, but you know... Do you know this about Travolta, that he lives like a vampire? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, he lives like a vampire, mm. and the whole family does. It's kind of how they roll. And a friend of mine who produced one of his movies, one of the script meetings they had was, like, started at 1 a.m. Oh, my God. And I asked him, because I worked with him, I'm like, how do you arrange, like, the day? Yeah. And he broke it down for me. But, yeah, they're on a schedule... But not totally when he's on set. Right. But he thrives during night shoots, which this was. Weird. Yeah. Okay. So what about you? If you Well, were... this has evolved over the years. Generally, like for most of my life, my dream sleep schedule would be 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. Okay. I don't think it's right now. It'd probably be 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. But I don't live that way, right? I wake up at 7 every morning. But I think if there were no more obligations and I just fell into a pattern, it'd be 1 a.m. sleep time, 9 a.m. Well, this is time. what time wake up would you get up yeah, yeah so so let's put me at nine 7 45 to 9 45 a.m yeah that okay. includes that what's yours we'll have to do that another day oh. um <laughs> uh mine would be in that bracket as well mm -hmm. um because mm -hmm. i think you're not we're gonna have the same answers i guess is where i'm leading is that this is probably gonna spit out an answer for both of us okay well but i don't definitely don't want to sleep out one, I ideally would sleep at 11 and wake up at nine. nine. Okay, yeah. so 10, nice 10 hour yeah. stretch. Yeah, that's great. I never get it, but. Who does, yeah. Okay. Approximately what time would you go to bed if you were entirely free to plan your evening? So you want to do 1 a.m. bracket? Yeah. So you want 1230 to 145 a.m. Wow. Okay. 
So we're already not on the same, okay. but that's fine. We've diverged. Yeah. If you usually have to get up at a specific time in the morning, how much do you depend on an alarm clock? Entirely. Very much. 100%. Okay. How easy do you find it to get up in the morning when you are not awakened unexpectedly? Like, is it easy for you to get up? These are, this is a tricky quiz because it really changes um, throughout your life. I've noticed the mm. older I get, the easier it is to wake up. And in fact, I can't even sleep as but long as I want to. But we're doing you now. We're okay. not trying to do you as as a wee as a boy. 25 year old. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So actually, do we already fuck it up? No. Are no, because that is my dream. Okay. That's what I would want. Okay. It's a, a medium now, getting up in the morning. It's okay. medium hard. Very easy, fairly easy, somewhat difficult, very difficult. Somewhat, somewhat difficult. difficult. How alert do you feel during the first half hour after you wake up in the morning? Very, fairly, slightly, not at all. I know I'm giving too much information, but maybe that is the point of these things. That's, yeah. Okay. So as long as I'm playing by the rules. Yeah. What's tricky is I meditate every morning. Before I'm allowed to have coffee, I first meditate. Okay. Right? Yeah, but here's the other thing. One time on my favorite podcast, Nobody's Listening Right, they tried to do a quiz, mm. and uh, they had to stop because they kept doing this. It got too frustrating. And I was like, just answer, guys. Okay. <laughs> if I got to go medium, whatever the medium answer is. How alert do you feel? Okay, you feel slightly alert? Or yeah. Okay. How hungry do you feel during the first half hour after you wake up? Zero. Okay. Not at all hungry. Not at all. Okay. Puke. Oh, puke. I'd rather die than eat when I wake okay. up. Okay, yeah. enough. Okay. <laughs> if you had a plate of bacon and a knife on another plate, I'd take it and kill myself. During the first... You know what's happening and the listener doesn't know it. But the last interview was really kind and sweet. And I had to be really, really patient. Yeah, you're rebelling. I'm rebelling. <laughs> you're seeing like the swing, the energy I couldn't unleash in the interview because it, it had a cadence. And, it, and it, need, it required a delicateness. And now I'm a bull in a china shop. Just swinging my horns yeah, everywhere. Yeah, and you know what's really fucking unfair? What? At the end of it, he gave you a compliment that is only pertains to that two hours of that time. Because no, now if, it's the opposite. If you think about his compliment, it's spot on. No, he said you is, restrained. Yes, is what he could tell this is who I am. Yeah. And that I was restraining that. Well, no, that you do restrain it, but you don't. When you just did that one hour. The reason I love the fat check, fat check, is because it's because uh, it's so fat. Because we get the calipers out, and we find out our BMI. No, because it's time to unleash to let the the God. tiger out of the cage okay. to create space for yourself to fart <laughs> to talk about Ashok's deviant behaviors. Okay, during the first half hour after you wake up in the morning, how do you feel? Very tired. Fairly tired. Fairly refreshed, very refreshed. Uh, fairly tired. Okay. If you had no commitments the next day, what time would you go to bed compared to your usual bedtime? Oh, an hour later. Okay. Is that an option? Yeah. Yeah. One to two hours later. Yep, one to two hours later. That's it's bullseye. Sometimes it's 90 minutes, and wow. it feels so good to me. Be up late? Like on a Friday night. Yeah. Normally, I'm, I have to be book on eyes closed yeah. by 11.14 because I wake up at 7.14. Yeah. And... Friday night, when I don't have to wake up to take the kids to school, I'm like, I might watch a little more TV. Oh, my God. But the problem is, how are you – maybe this is because you have to get up for the kids so your body's more regulated. Mm -hmm. But 
My, that's so, by the way, that is solely what it is. Because yeah. before kids, I was not nearly as predictable. It was all over the map. Right. And also, like, I can't control it. It's not like if I, okay, I got to go to bed at 8 tonight. I can't. I get in bed, but I'm not asleep until midnight. Totally. But I'm taking sleep aids, non-narcotic. Right. Non-narcotic. And, yeah, back before I had commitments, if I was able to sleep for a very long time, I would embrace that because I don't sleep very well. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, every, like, fourth day, my body's finally like, you, we need to put you unconscious for nine hours, ten hours. And I would I would cling to that. Yeah. But I don't have that option right. anymore. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. You have decided to do physical exercise. A friend suggests that you do this for one hour twice a week. And the best time for him is between 7 and 8 a.m. Bearing in mind nothing but your own internal clock, how do you think you would perform? That's too early for me. Okay, so like to work would find it difficult or would find it very difficult, would be in reasonable form, would be in good form? Reasonable form. Oh, okay. And not difficult at all. Uh, no. I can't answer that and seem <laughs> humble at okay, the same I'll time. Okay, I'll leave it. You picked it. Yeah. I'm pro- in good <laughs> physical shape. Yeah. Like you can wake me up at 3 a.m. It's not a. talking it's not about your difficult. shape. It's like. But that has a huge impact. Yeah, like if right. you can barely do the workout, then yeah, the time of the day, day is really significant. But you can wake me up at 3 a.m. I can go hike Griffith in 45 minutes. Right. I've been practicing. Okay. All right. At approximately what time in the evening do you feel tired and as a result in need of sleep? Okay. So never. Is that an option? I never feel tired. When I feel tired, it's so exciting. Whatever the least amount is, then. Well, it's not. No, it's approximately what time. Oh. So it's between 8 and 9, 9 and 10, 15, 10, 15, and 12.45 a.m., 12.45 and 2 a.m. Boom. That's the window I'll actually feel tired. Okay. That's why I want to sleep at 2 to 10, because then I actually feel tired. Yeah. I want to sleep 2 to 10. You said 1. 1 to 9 now, yeah, yeah. Okay. You... (laughs) You want to be at your peak performance for a test that you know is going to be mentally exhausting and will last two hours. Oh, it's too long for a test. You are entirely free to plan your day, considering only your internal clock. Which one of the four testing times would you choose? Mm. 8 to 10 a.m., 11 to 1 p.m., 3 to 5 p.m., 7 to 9 p.m. 11 to 1. That's our, uh, that's our, that's our sweet spot of recording. Yeah, yeah. If you got into bed at 11 p.m., how tired would you be? Not. Zero tired. Not at all tired. Yeah. For some reason, you have gone to bed several hours later than usual, but there is no need to get up at any particular time in the next morning. Which one of the following are you most likely to do? We'll wake up at usual time, but we'll not fall back asleep. We'll wake up at usual time and we'll doze thereafter. We'll wake up at usual time, but we'll fall asleep again. We'll not wake up until later than usual. Number one. Not fall back asleep, but Correct. wake up at usual yeah, I never time. never fall back asleep once I'm You up. won't sleep. I wish. No. Okay. Once I'm up, I'm up. But I'm also... No, but will you, will you wake up naturally a little bit later? Not no. significantly, no. Okay. One night, you have to remain awake between 4 to 6 a.m. to carry out a night watch. Ooh. Ooh this is what I just say. Oh, this is to do the hike you woke me up for. Right, but this is a night watch. Yeah, I can't go to sleep on your watch. You have no time commitments the next day. Which one of the alternatives would suit you best? Would not go to bed until the watch was over. Oh. Yeah. Would take a nap before and sleep after. Would take a good sleep before and nap after. A good sleep. Would sleep only before the watch. 
Number one, I would I would just stay up till six a.m. Yeah, I love that. If I ever, anytime I have an excuse to go through the night, I love it. Oh, it happens so infrequently. It's generally like when I'm driving or something. Oh I give my myself that freedom. God, I would take a good sleep before and then nap after. A good sleep. <laughs> really, I would take a good sleep before and a good sleep after. Yeah. Okay, you have to do two hours of hard physical work. You are entirely free to plan your day. Considering only your internal clock, which one of the following times would you choose? They kind of already asked us, didn't they? they no, that was that. for, um, I guess I'm that mental. was a test. Yeah, mental. This is physical exertion. Okay. I guess, I, yeah, just for me, they peak at the same time. Okay, so 11 to 1? Yeah. You've decided to do physical exercise. Wait, I already, what? They're going to have you do it again. You've decided to do physical exercise. A friend suggests that you do this for one hour twice a week. The best time for her, oh, the best time for her is between 10 and 11 p.m. Aye. Bearing in mind only your internal clock, how well do you think you'd perform? Would be in good form, would be in reasonable form, would find it difficult, would find it very difficult. Reasonable form. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to lie to make you happy. <laughs> Your own Hold work. on a second. That, can't, that answer can't shock you. I said you could wake me up at 4 in the morning to hike. So why on earth would 10 to 11 be bad? We already know the answer to that. But you're still disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> this is a test where it's just like how many times can you disappoint someone with the exact same information? <laughs> Suppose you can choose your own work hours. Assume that you work a five-hour day, including breaks. Your job is interesting. Wow. And you're They're paid. describing our job. <laughs> yeah. And you're paid based on. Your performance. Oh, my God. This is it. At approximately what time would you choose? Why don't they just say you're a host of armchair expert? <laughs> at approximately what time would you choose to begin? Five hours starting at? 11. Oh. Mm, five hours, 10. Okay. So between 9 and 2. <clears throat> That's the options. Wait, to start? Yeah. That's a big window. That's five hours. No, that's that's the time frame between nine no, and two. It says at approximately what time would you choose to begin? Oh, right. Okay, so nine. Five hours starting between nine and two. So it's what's the next? Five hours starting between two and five. Hours hours starting between five and four a.m. Five hours starting between eight a.m. and nine a.m. Five hours starting between four a.m. and eight a.m. I guess the first one was that nine and two. Nine yeah, nine, and, nine and two. That's the one that has 11 or 10 in there. Although that's weird because that's a five-hour increment. So that's very confusing. That poor question. No, they probably have data that that's a similar energy yeah. thing. Okay. But at approximately what time of day do you usually feel your best? 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, the options are weird, but I do. They're specific, so it must mean something. It's one is between 5 and 8 a.m., Two is between 8 and 10 a.m. Three is between 10 and 5. 10 a.m. Um, and 5 p.m. Okay, this is not, that is crazy. The one window is three hours. Exactly. The next is two. The next is six. And you think that means there's a flaw. And I, I think see. that means there's actual science around that grouping of time. Yeah, just generalize that. Yeah, that that means something. Because number two only had a two-hour window. I take number two. I take door number two. What? Because the third option was crazy. The third option is the is your is the one I like. yeah. <laughs> I'm picking the third because okay. now you just start trying to be stubborn. I'm not. One hears about morning types and evening types. Which one of these types do you consider yourself to be? Evening. Definitely an evening type. <laughs> 
is trying to think of what the answers to that question could be. What do you mean? People are either morning people or evening people. Would you describe yourself as A, loves bicycles, B, performs best at noon, C, <laughs> loves popsicles? What? <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying, Rob? Yeah. Yeah, okay. You do? What is he saying? The the answer is just too random to... (laughs) But nothing about... I know. I get what you're saying also. (laughs) He's right on the fence. This poor guy, he has to sit in between the spectrum every day. It makes sense. Okay, your score's 43. Blah. Okay, yeah, that's not even a a D. Your morningness, eveningness type is considered to be intermediate. (laughs) Oh, my God. That was a long walk to find... (laughs) Right right in the middle. Okay. Morningness, eveningness scores range from 16 to 86. Scores of 41 and below indicate evening types. Oh, you're close to that. Cusp. Scores of 59 and above indicate morning types. Scores between 42 to 58 indicate intermediate. Your score allows us to estimate when your brain begins to produce the nighttime hormone, melatonin, which normally occurs between two to three hours before you are ready to fall asleep. We estimate that your melatonin onset occurs at about 10.30 p.m. Okay. We estimate that your, quote, natural bedtime is about 12.15 a.m. Oh, okay. And now you I'm going to call it. my kids school and see if they can move the start time. There you go. Um, all right. So that was that quiz. Let's see what else I have here. Okay. The famous art piece, The Cup That Has Fur, is by Merritt Oppenheim. Mm. Furline teacup. It's perhaps the single most notorious surrealist object. Its subtle perversity was inspired by... Per- subtle perversity? Yeah. Ooh. It's subtle perversity. That's you. Okay, this is great. I'm overt perversity. Mm. You're subtle perversity. Yeah. You're pervy. You like poop and stuff. Stop. What? You I do? hate poop. Oh my God. You like throw up on your lovers. You want your lovers to throw up. It just depends who's Thank God I can just cut this. Its subtle perversity was inspired by a conversation between Oppenheim, Pablo Picasso, and the photographer Dora Maar at a Paris cafe. This is it. Cafe Flora. Uh, Ooh, it's so gross. Yeah. Okay, this is the flower poopy. What? Flower puppy. Yeah, we okay, call there it. There was a bit of your subtle perversity. <laughs> we no, Callie, Max, and I call it the flower poopy. Okay. Because there's a documentary on art, and when the guy had an accent and a white person accent. Oh, okay. And they said flower. Poopy. So you guys had a good laugh at the white man. Yep, huh? we sure did. Ha ha ha, white man. And they are real flowers, and they get changed out. Oh my gosh, that's an expensive art piece to own. Oh no, you want to know how much it costs? No, I don't. <laughs> that thing's valueless to me. That's homework. I loved it. It oh, was it's great beautiful. to witness it, to spectate, but to be the owner of it and have to maintain it? Let me show you something. No, thank you. 50, 50, $55 million. Is what? A high end estimate suggests that it was. Of the sell. cup or the dog? The dog. Oh. The dog. That well, makes then fuck, sense. That cup. That's also Coons. Oh, wait. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is Coons? Yeah, the flower Jeff poopy is. He had a sculpture similar that. For fifty-eight million. What if when the greedy pig got excited, he just said, <laughs> "Let me send you something." My only phone. Except, except. Oh my god! I just sent Dax. A you know what's weird? Me in front of the flower poop. At first, this is hard to tell who's who. 
It's me and Callie. No, it's I, from I, the I, I know it's the flower I, puppy or Monica. <laughs> I didn't even look at the flower puppy. Oh. Why would I ever look at the flower puppy? There's two beautiful women <laughs> in front of the flower puppy. But um, from the back, yeah. initially, you can't see any skin tones. It's a black and white photo. You're on the right, but it takes a second, which I would have never, because you guys from the front, so distinct. <laughs> yep. I didn't realize Kelly was shorter than you. She's not. What? She's not. She's taller than me. That's a weird angle, I guess. Force perspective. Yeah. Optical illusion. But also, I mean, she has white skin. It is a but black and white it's picture. It's hard to tell. Yeah. It's hard to tell who's who. I think it's hard to tell because my hair looks really good in this picture. Well, it's also up in a bun. Yeah, but it's like a really good bun. Uh-huh. By the way, it looks like they, it was, this sculpture was due for a flower change. When you guys arrive. No, no. Does that look like half of them are dead or no. is that just me? That's just the It looks like the dog has mange. You know no. how that's a real thing? Yeah. Dogs have mange? <laughs> I know. But okay. it's because it's a black and white picture and it's the discoloration. Like, look at this one with the color. See how the dark pink? Mm, that's yeah, why. Yeah, it really does something yeah. extraordinary. This is a great photo. It looks like you guys are in Paris in the 50s. And I love it. I can't believe Kelly's so much shorter than you. She this <laughs> is a huge reveal. Is she shorter than Monica? No. Oh, by a lot. I'm going to send you the picture, Rob. You can be the judge for yourself. <sighs> Who's who? I mean, you already heard me say it, but is it confusing to you? I haven't got it yet. Okay. Oh, yeah, that is that is confusing. You don't immediately. Like, there's no, no. Up, I mean, clearly she's on the right, but you don't immediately. But also clearly not. Yeah. Well, black You're and white. You never have your hair up in a bun either. What, you were only doing that in Europe? No, I wear my hair <laughs> up all the time. In a bun? Yeah. Are you sure? Not that much the way it is. Yes, Normally this is it's uniquely a European. This is a Euro look. I think you were feeling the... <laughs> no, I do, I do do it. It's just not every day. You got to post this picture now, Rob. Try to yeah, remember she's that. She's so short. I didn't know she was short. Guys, yeah, she's incredibly short. She's guys, like five... Judging from this and knowing that you're 5'1", I now know Kelly is 4'10". When people yeah, want to know what inches. it's like to be the only woman around oh, you men. you got to frame everything of course with I your do. sexism. Yeah, it is. No, if you were a boy here and you sent Rob and I a picture of you and another boy and you were a boy who was 5'1", and the other boy was smaller than you in the photo. I'm not 5'1", even. I'm trying to build you up. You're 5.5. You're 5. <laughs> yeah. 5.6. 5. I'm 5.5. 5. 5.5, which is five and a half inch tall. Yeah. Right. Which I guess puts Callie at four ten and a half. Point is, if you were a boy, Monica, in fact, it'd be even worse. Whatever. I just sometimes, like, just not, there's too much pile on. Just shut up. You know what you're saying? Just shut up. <laughs> She's five two or five three. By the way, I taught the girls like five days ago. I don't shut up. I grow up. And when I look at you, I throw up. Your mom comes around the corner and licks it up. Ew. They had never heard that. I've never, I've heard, never heard that. that either. What? <laughs> Oh, Chris and I both knew it inside and out. When you're on the playground, someone says, shut up. You go, I don't shut up. I grow up. And when I look at you, I throw up. What? I've never yeah, heard that. Yeah, and then an advanced add-on was, and your mom comes around the corner and licks it up. You That's had never disgusting. heard. Yes, it's supposed to absolutely annihilate the person that told you to shut up. It's your defense against shut up. And then they hear that and they're like, oh, gross. I guess I'll never say shut up to them again. It's effective. Wow. Mm -hmm. If someone says shut up, I say... What do you say? Let's try it. Okay. Just start talking. Okay. Is William... Shut up. Hey, that's so... That hurt my feelings really bad. Didn't I tell you to shut up? 
<laughs> oh, that hurt. That was so mean. It actually, when I was saying it, my hurt. eyes are I welling know. up. I know it, that was really, really, really mean. Good acting, though. Thank you. Oh, that one. He's been meaning. He's been wanting to say that for no, five years. No, it hurt. So I just, I just found out I was a good person because that hurt. The first shut up I love just because I think I have a funny shut up if I want to have one. Go ahead. Let me just hit you with shut up one more time. I don't know. <laughs> you want to do this again? No, just the first part. Okay. And then I'll play along with your part. Okay? Evolution of an Shut up. Hey, what? I was just talking. That hurt. Why'd you do that? Well, I thought when you were talking, you, you were you were at, you were trying to um, minimize me, and then so I re I overreacted and asked, and I should have just asked you to stop talking about me, but instead I said shut up, and I apologize. But I learned a lot from this interaction. Thank you. I'm going to tell the teacher anyway. <laughs> Wait, no. <laughs> Do you think that's a good shut up, though? Yeah. Can you hit me with a shut up? Anyways, I walk into aisle six. I'm expecting to find the dog food. That's always where the dog food's at, right? Well, then I look up, and there's paper towels everywhere. You're missing your cue. Oh. I can only improv for so long. Oh, are I'm you serious? Of, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, have you been to Gelson's lately? Apparently, they've absolutely juggled all the aisles. So I Shut up. Did you say something? No. I thought I heard something, but I didn't. No, hear. I didn't. I wasn't talking to you. Oh, anyways. Okay, great. So I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't tell people to Your shut, shut up. Your shut up is like an excuse me. And I know, because oh, I don't feel do right doing it. I'm going to do yours now, okay? Okay. Okay. Um, okay, so you are 42 uh, on shut, shut the... Um, shut up? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse That's, me. I know. I don't feel seen. This is what women do. Oh, here they... we go. <laughs> the fucking lecture on gender equality. It is. It won't stop. All right, hit me. There hit you. me. No, you, no fight back. You're a fighter. No, You're a rascal. I'm not. Women can't fight back. They, oh. they <laughs> women get tired of fighting after a while, and then they just get railroaded. Yeah. Women. Yeah. <laughs> This episode was brought to you by misogyny. It's everywhere, folks. Look around. You're Happy probably holidays. experiencing it right now. Okay. Mm. Um, William James, yes, is the father of psychology. And that's pretty much. Well, I looked into the new coaster that comes off the tracks. That's not real, but I think there is a patent. Ooh, patent think, pending. Mm-hmm. Mm. Disney, it says, has a patent for a roller coaster that jumps across open space. But... Then I click and it says, sorry, this page isn't available. Okay. So mm. I think it's just fake. I do too. Yeah. I think it was just supposed to get everyone excited on the internet and Which they succeeded. It did. Yeah. It really did. Oh, William James and Wilhelm Wundt. They're both the founders of psychology. W Wilhelm Wundt? Yeah. Two men working in the 19th century are generally credited as being the founders of psychology. Psychology as a science and academic discipline that was distinct from philosophy. Their names were Wilhelm Wundt and William James. You know, I think about Freud sometimes. What are your thoughts on Freud? I don't think of him much because so many of his theories are outdated and have been proven wrong. If I'm right, I, and I am so ill-versed in this, but... I want to say a lot of the criticism revolves women, mm -hmm. rightly so. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, like the Oedipus. Like the, the, no, that stuff's fine. It's the hysteria 
that like there's oh, all yeah. this like hysteria stuff and sexual it being related to their sexuality and all this different stuff. I think my conclusion or I think my current thoughts are people are really actually pretty good at figuring out their brain. Mm. And they can see in other people's brains similarities with theirs. And you can carve out some truths about your brain. I was just with somebody and they said, what's an opinion you have that you know is on the other side of the political spectrum? Mm -hmm. It's a fun question. And I said, well, I have a lot. I guess I'm really a centrist yeah. at this point. But at any rate, he said, okay, mine is... I don't think men and women can have plutonic relationships. He says that. Yeah. And I said, well, what I think would be braver of you to say is that you can't. Have, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then maybe even further, which would be even harder to admit and to be brave about, would be to say you're not interested in women unless they are attractive. Mm. And in his defense, he didn't like immediately get defensive over. He was kind of like, huh. But- I guess I walked away from that going, that is human nature. So because he can't and he doesn't think he's abnormal, he naturally assumes all men are that way. And I got really exactly. – it's so funny because generally if someone says something in it and I ruminate on it, I know one of the sources of rumination is generally like it triggered an insecurity of mine or it – you know. Mm -hmm. And so – that's not the case with this one. I have so many female friends and yeah. so many plutonic friends. It's crazy. So that's, I know it's not that. The other thing I'll get locked into is justice. So if I feel like there's something kind of cosmically unjust about an opinion, mm -hmm. I'll kind of stew on it, right? And the way I stewed on this was like, okay, so if men and women can't have plutonic relationships... What does that do for women in the workplace? You have to be friends with your coworkers exactly. if you want to advance in any organization. Mm -hmm. Half of the stuff that will be generated will be done at a bar, out at a fucking event, being social, being Even friends. Even just in a writer's room. Basically, then what? Women are completely fucked in the workplace given that men have the power and men can't be friends with them. Like that opinion has implicit in it a complete dead end for women in the workplace. Yeah. Additionally, I think that opinion is about only three steps removed from women have to cover themselves up completely because us men can't control ourselves. So it's on you to cover your whole exactly. face and body. It's it's only three steps away from that. No, but now you're on my side of the misogyny spectrum. You're defending women, which you should. That's right. And that yeah. is what a lot of women are up against. For sure. I agree with that. And it's shitty. I guess maybe he's saying he can't have like a close, like a close relationship with a woman and not. It was really clear what he was saying. Men can't have plutonic relationships with women. They'll want to have sex with them. Right. Like, there wasn't any nuance but, to what he was saying. But there might have been in a workplace. Like, it, it, taking it into a workplace might be a little different. But then I would say that's a cop-out. You can't say that that applies to life, and then when you walk through the doors of a corporation, that vanishes. You either think that's true or you don't. Yeah. There's or no, maybe, like, magic force field around a, a, a business. Well, there is often. That's why there's, like, HR. I mean, you do often, in most workplaces, have some boundaries around your relationships, Oh, I'm saying it, it can't change who you are. No, no, it can't. But maybe 
I guess the thought could be you could still have a good working relationship with someone and not be attracted to them and also not like they're not it's not a relationship you're pursuing so much as a, a work well exactly and i think that would be that person's argument yeah but i call bullshit on that because yeah. you're actually friends with the people you work with and in fact you're friends with the people you do the best work with well friendship friends, it's not a work relationship yeah. you're friends people gravitate to one another they develop friendships they eat lunch together well at it's work. also how you uh, climb a ladder a thousand percent. So it's yeah. all relationships. Yeah. So if 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 the two can't have relationships unless they're fucking, that's a big problem. Yes, for the I agree. Workplace. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah, that's bad. And I do think a lot of men do feel that way. Well, Mike Pence certainly does. Yeah, <laughs> that's who you're talking about, right? I was hanging out with Mike Pence. Yeah. We had grabbed some food, yeah. and then we were driving <laughs> in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anyway. Anywho, <laughs> well, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. I'm going to look over at the coffee machine. Oh, okay. I brought some corn for popping. Nope, that's not the right time. We're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Is it snowing anywhere right now in we this great United States? Yes, it is. It is? Yeah. There is absolutely nothing fun to do, so we'll watch this corn pop. <laughs> Life in the 30s is a drag. <laughs> All we have is fire and corn. <laughs> uh, all right. Okie Love you. Love you too. <laughs>